Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Everyone, this is Julian Plumador, and um, gosh, I had a, did I say your last name right, Julian? Plumador, absolutely. Oh, good. I, I can't wait to bring you Julian's story, because they came and spoke at a panel um, at CIS, and I feel like you are on a mission to really change how we think and talk about um, and talk to homeless folks or people that aren't housed and really maintain dignity health, growth, and solutions. And so my hope is that you will impart a lot of knowledge to all of us today that, so that we can be better stewards to other humans that maybe look a little different than we look, but are actually not that different. So do you want to say a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and um, your background? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And of course, it's always an, an honor to be invited to talk about this stuff. As you said, I mean, I, I agree. I kind of am on a mission about all of this stuff um, because it hits very close to home for me. It's very personal. Um, I have my own lived experience over 30 years worth of uh, mental health conditions. Um, and also uh, more limited, not certainly not 30 year long, but my own personal experience of homelessness as well, uh, that came out of um, spending my teens and young adulthood as uh, a queer transgender youth. Um, I am fortunate in that my uh, time spent in homelessness was a lot shorter than many people experience. What we also know about homelessness is that it's inherently traumatizing for anyone who experiences it. And um, I, that's the time that I spent uh, living in Seattle on the streets was something that I will carry with me for the rest of my life and taught me a lot about myself, taught me a lot about how we relate to uh, people who are experiencing public mental health crisis, who are experiencing homelessness. And it's something that I have been able to incorporate into the work that I do with the Mental Health Association of San Francisco, both in terms of uh, training community members to be able to better respond to uh, public mental health crisis, and also in the work that I have been able to do uh, as part of crisis intervention team training with the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, and we've seen a lot of, of um, growth and, uh, and positive results out of that as well. Great. I'm so, so glad that you're helping our police department. You know, when you were on the panel, you said, you know, they're actually getting good training. And in some cases, calling the police department is going to get you sometimes a better response than other agencies. Is that right? Right. And, and it's so, it's so counterintuitive to say that, right. Um, you know, to say, oh yeah, you know, if you see someone who's in serious mental health crisis, call the police because We've seen such negative results from that in the past and, and certainly in other areas of the country. 
But interestingly, what's happened in San Francisco over the past five or six years is that as more and more officers are opting, it's still an opt-in uh, training, um, are opting into crisis intervention team training, um, they, they're really being transformed by this, especially we're, we're working a lot with officers who are newly through the academy, who don't have a lot of stuff to unlearn, which of course makes it easier. Um, but what we're, what we're doing is working with them over a, a week long training. I mean, they get a full 40 hours of training up front and then they get ongoing, uh, uh, training reinforcement, uh, throughout their career. And what we're hearing from the communities that we work with uh, here at, at MHASF is that this has transformed a lot of people's relationship with the police in San Francisco. Um, we just recently held uh, here at MHASF, we held our eighth annual Mental Health Services Act award ceremony. And we had multiple people on stage at that event um, people of color telling us that uh, that they used to be afraid of, of the police in San Francisco, but crisis intervention team training has changed that and changed their relationship uh, with uh, with San Francisco Police Department officers. Um, I want to be really clear um, about one thing, uh, which is that when I, I tell audiences when I'm, I'm doing supportive crisis response training in San Francisco, when I tell audience members that there are um, a, a few incidences that they might encounter uh, in public spaces that are outside of the scope of the supportive crisis response training that we offer, when it's above their their level to uh, to interact with or to um, to feel confident about approaching, and they call the uh, they call the police and try to get uh, crisis intervention team trained officers on scene, they need to ask for that specifically. Just calling SFPD is not going to do it. Um, that's not going to be enough. And it's, it's, you know, it's going to be a roll of the dice as to whether you get someone who is going to be an appropriate responder in that situation. So you need to uh, say, ask, ask for crisis intervention team trained officers. Exactly. And so ask that for in flashing repeatedly. signs repeatedly. Yes. Okay. Is and, everyone and hearing that? As a, I'm sorry? I, I'm just making sure that all the listeners are hearing that. What Julian exactly. is saying is... Exactly, and to frame clear. it as a mental health crisis, whether or not you're sure that that's exactly what it is, but that's what's going to get a CIT-trained officer on scene. Wonderful. That's a great tip. Well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump dovetail. Well, I'm going to say a few things for folks that are watching this that don't know anything about Sidewalk Talk because we have a few followers that don't. We have a particular... Um, sort of ethic at Sidewalk Talk, Julian, which is we're not out on the street to help people. We're out on the street to rehumanize everyone, right? So we're out there to connect. We're not out there to help. And it's hard because some of our listeners are having a hard time getting this one. <laughs> but we're not out there to help people because that's a power dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. And you said something. You said, for people that need to unlearn, can we talk about what the general public needs to unlearn about the homeless population? Certainly. Um, one of the things that uh, I talk about a lot um, around this subject is the role that stigma plays. And stigma, when we talk about stigma, we're talking about those um, negative, incorrect beliefs about any marginalized group. And, and when we're talking specifically about homelessness uh, and, 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 and especially about the intersection between mental health conditions and homelessness, 
there are a lot of misconceptions that people may not even be aware of. Uh, there are um, there are a lot of of really profoundly negative beliefs that uh, that are kind of floating around out there that people who are homeless uh, did something to deserve it, that they're lazy, that they prefer to live that way, that um, that they're, that it's some ref- that their state of homelessness is some reflection of a, a, of a character defect, a character flaw. Um, even when people don't hold those explicitly negative beliefs, there may be a form of benevolent stigma that um, that uh, that we see crop up, such as oh, these poor people, they can't take care of themselves. We need to uh, we need to take care of them for them. We need to make decisions because they don't have the insight to be able to know what's best for them. And really, one of the things that that I talk about a lot, that we talk about a lot at MHASF, is the dignity. Of uh, of uh, people who are homeless and who may have mental health conditions, um, the uh, the self determination, the empowerment, uh, and it is not my job, Tracy. It's not your job. It's not the job of anybody who's listening to go out there and fix people. What we can do, and this is what Sidewalk Talk is doing, and why I'm I'm so thrilled to to be partnering with you here, and hopefully in the future as well. Um, is because we're really on the same page about this. We are there to listen and to respond to the needs that people are are telling us that they have. We're not there to solve people. We're not there to fix them. Um, we're assuming, and when we when we set out to fix someone, we're assuming that they're broken. And while it may feel for those of us who have experienced homelessness when when that happens to us, like we've lost some portion of our humanity, we haven't. We're still human beings. We still have, but we're still the experts on our own experience. We know what is right for us, what is best for us, and what works. What we often need more than anybody else is someone simply to sit with us, to get comfortable with being uncomfortable with us, um, and to, to inhabit that space that can feel very lonely for, uh, for me as a, as a homeless person or someone experiencing a mental health crisis, can feel very isolated. But if someone simply comes and sits with me and listens to me and lets me talk out what's on my mind, um, maybe problem solve with myself and and have an audience for that, um, that can help to clarify so much for me. Um, And so this is really what we work with and and try to, to help people to recognize when maybe they have some incorrect assumptions or beliefs about their interactions with someone who may be homeless or experiencing a mental health crisis or, or uh, conditions in general, um, is that really it's so much simpler than a lot of times what we make it out to be. We think that there are these, are these magic tricks we need to learn, um, that there, there's this secret knowledge that if we just had it, we'd be experts at intervening in mental health crisis or, or um, responding to the needs of someone who may be homeless. And it's so much simpler than that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I brought up on the panel was some interesting research. Um, I think it was a Harvard study. I can post it in the comments later. But what we do know is the human animal always wants to register other human animals. We want to, we're natural social beings, but we don't in two cases. We don't in the case of homelessness and addiction. 
that we actually objectify and displace naturally under those two circumstances, very specifically. We actually dehumanize and treat almost as other, I mean, in an extreme way. And it's not happening just on a learning level. It's actually happening in our brain. And so my, I think if I had a longing for sidewalk talk, it's to fix our brains a little bit, right? (laughs) But can I be really blunt with you? It can be sure. scary. It can be scary out there on the sidewalk, yep. right? We we have folks that that come by. I've been spit on. Um, mm-hmm. I've had loogies hocked at me. Um, uh, that's always fun. <laughs> um, we've had um, folks sit down in our chair um, who removed all their clothing and and defecated in the chair. Um, yep. And so I'd be curious to hear how do we humanize folks when those kinds of sort of scary, unfamiliar interactions happen? What advice would you right. have? That's a, such a great question. And thank you for mentioning that. And, and, and uh, the way I would frame it, first of all, is to say that just as, as we who are not currently homeless or in mental health crisis have a, a kind of a hardwired tendency to objectify other people, people who are experiencing homelessness or mental health crisis may have that same hardwired tendency to objectify us they're not seeing us as an individual when they're behaving towards us in that way. We're representing something else to them. We are often representing to them all of the people who haven't helped, who haven't, uh, who haven't taken the time to sit and listen and actually see them as human beings. And so for me, when I'm put in one of those situations, number one, first of all, I have to get in the habit of learning to recognize the difference between fear and danger. Um, and uh, on the panel of when we spoke, there was another panelist who framed it in a, in a strength-based way as recognizing the difference between comfort and safety. Um, I may not be comfortable, but that doesn't mean I'm not safe. I may be afraid, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm in danger. Um, all of the things that you're mentioning are uncomfortable, they may be extremely off-putting, they are socially unacceptable in some situations, they're also not a direct threat. And I'm not saying that there's never an, a circumstance when there might be a direct threat, and those are the sorts of situations where I might, I might encourage someone to contact a crisis intervention team trained officer who can come and use some of those higher level mm-hmm. uh, de-escalation skills that, mm-hmm. that uh, we impart during that week-long training. Um, but what I what I can say from my own experience on both sides of those situations, both having been uh, someone homeless who has, has a lot of unresolved anger towards people who would not help, um, who ignored me, who walked past me, um, who dehumanized me and humiliated me in a variety of ways, and had that I had that response to try to try to give some of that back at times. Um, from that side of the table and from the side of the table I'm sitting on now, um, I know not to take this stuff as personally as it feels in that moment. Um, and to recognize that there can be a certain amount of dues paying or credibility building or trust building involved in, um, in being able to, um, to establish relationships with community members that actually work. And that are that are beneficial to them because what gives me the right to feel that just because I sit down at a table with someone in public who I've never met before that they automatically have to respect me 
that they automatically have to trust me. Um, they don't. That's that's it's on me to be willing to do what it takes to build that trust. And a big part of being able to build that trust is being vulnerable myself, um, is, is letting someone see my own humanity and letting, so, letting someone see that I'm not going to be rattled or scared off by extreme behavior or by visible disrespect. You know, I gotta, I gotta kind of absorb a little bit of that. And I'm not gonna, I'm not going to push it past my, my genuine um, a level of comfort and safety. I mean, if I'm really feeling physically threatened, um, I'm going to take that as a, as a, as a serious, uh, you know, measure to pay attention to. However, um, it's something that I personally have had to cultivate and I encourage others to cultivate too, that, that mental checklist running down of, okay, am I really in danger here? What's really going on? What's the dynamic and what can I do to respond in a positive, affirming, validating way uh, that's going to express my own humanity and vulnerability and that's potentially going to build trust in this, this budding relationship. I love that. I just want to reflect a couple of things that you'd say because I think it's sure. super important to highlight them. When you are on the receiving end of someone's anger, rather than judging it at face value, you said to ask the question, who do I represent to them? Do I represent every character or person that has not helped, that has harmed, that has humiliated? And am I getting the overlay of years of that? And the willingness to sit in that discomfort because that's part of meeting the person, right? So that's the first thing I yes, and, Yeah, and, and one of the things that we talk about a lot is compassion. And when we break that word down, it really means feeling with someone and being able to feel their discomfort with them. And that's one of the great gifts that we can give in listening um, is, is not, being, uh, not being scared away, not being put off um, by someone's, uh, someone's anger or someone's fear or distress. Um, so yes, all of that, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that I think happens for people that are, I, I, I say, don't get your do-gooderness all over me. <laughs> mm, yeah. We can really burden people with making us feel like a do-gooder. Mm-hmm. And yet to be compassionate, to feel with someone, what we sometimes have to have compassion for is how we represent, they're overlaying on us a, a representation of people that have really humiliated, ignored marginalized, dehumanized, harmed, didn't help. And that to, how do I feel with someone while they're angry with me? How do I yeah. empathize when someone, when someone's mad at me? It's hard because it bumps yeah. up against, I, I think that for me and you, I, I'd love your education on this. So correct me if I'm wrong while I think aloud. What I say to people is your inner sense of goodness has to come from the inside. Because if it doesn't, then you're going to impose all of that on everybody you come in contact with to reaffirm your goodness. So all of your activism in the world is going to be, again, centering yourself. And for me in this work, one of the most important things that I have to work on, I have to know that I'm good even when I'm an asshole. (laughs) Or when someone else is telling you you're an asshole. Or when someone else is telling me and I'm an asshole. I'm like, yeah, and I'm still good. So then I don't have to react to them. Right. Right. And, and this is, this is so much about 
about a personal practice of whatever form of self-care we may be we may be engaged in, whether that's mindfulness, you know, whether that's, you know, there, there are all sorts of different forms that self-care can take for people, but that's so, so crucial for us as community responders to engage in and, and take care of ourselves and get our own shit together, right? Because if we're not composed internally, if we're not motivated internally, and if we're not able to validate ourselves, we're, and if, we're, if we're going out into the community trying to help other people in order to feel validated ourselves because we, we need to be making the world a better place, you know, if that's why we're doing it, um, we're going to fail. We're not going to help our, we're not going to do anything good for ourselves. We're not going to do anything good for other people. Um, and there's, a, there's, a, it's, it's such a balance to strike because on the one hand, we, on the one hand, we have to center ourselves enough to be okay in ourselves and to be self-validated um, and self-supported uh, and, uh, and all of that. And on the other hand, we absolutely have to let go of ourselves and our own expectations and not bring our own stuff into uh, into the um, the uh, interactions that we're having in in the public square, um, so yeah, it's 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 really tough um, to to find that balance, and, and so many of us get into this kind of work for really positive reasons, right? We've we've had our own lived experience with whatever it may be, and we want to give back, but there is so much stuff that we need to unlearn. For one thing, one of the things that we need to unlearn is that what worked for us may not work for someone else, right? And so, you know, for that, that impulse that I came into this work with, like, oh, I want to share what I've learned with other people. I want to share my experiences and, uh, and help them to, you know, open their eyes so that they can have a better life. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way because each one of us is an expert on our own experience. I'm an expert on mine. Tracy, I'm not an expert on yours or anyone else's. All I can do is, is sit and listen to you talk about what you've been through, maybe share a thing or two that I've experienced to let you know that I've been there too, and that I'm another human being who's on this planet at the same time as you, and I'm willing to support you. But for me to try to impose my experience on you as somehow being, uh, being a solution for you, that's never going to work. And for me to, um, to bring my own experiences um, and my own needs uh, into an interaction with a community member that I'm listening to um, is going to is it's going to erase every possibility of positive things happening. Um, yeah, you said something earlier. I'm trying to to remember back, but, but go ahead, and I'll, I'm sure it'll come back to me. Hmm. Well, I, I pointed out that that. Who, who do I represent to them and how do I know that I'm good on the inside? And you were talking about self-validation and resilience. Right, right. And, um, and so that, you know, if we're not bringing that sense of that, that sense of security, that emotional security of how through our own issues around that and being able to self-validate, um, I, it's, it's, we're not going to get it from community members, at least not up front. I mean, if we get it, it's going to be incidentally. And the thing is um, that, uh, that if we go into a situation trying to help, trying to save someone, we're not going to be able to do it. The irony is if that's not our goal, we may actually end up doing something to help them, but it's not going to be intentionally. It's going to be accidentally. And, um, and it's going to be person-driven 
on from the person that we're working with. They're going to be the one. I mean, like I go out and I talk in the community all the time. And I think I've said some words of wisdom. I think I put something out there that's going to, that's going to really open people's eyes and people come up after afterwards to talk to me and they'll, they'll pick something out that was just like one line that I said that I didn't even know I said, right. And that's what stuck with them. That's what I didn't mean to say it. I didn't, it wasn't part of my message that I intended to send, but that's what was transformative for them. Mm -hmm. I'm just a conduit, right? I'm just there. I'm a sounding board. Um, and, and it's what people bring, what other people bring to the conversation. that's really going to be transformative for them. Yeah. Yeah. I want to highlight one other thing that you said, because I think it's really important to highlight it. You said it's up to you as the listener to build credibility and rapport not up to the person that sits down and speaks because they're you're a perfect stranger to them. I'm, I'm sorry, Tracy, I'm, I'm uh, losing the audio a little bit. Could you repeat that, please? Yeah, I'm just highlighting something else that you said. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, that it's up to you as the listener to create that credibility and rapport with the speaker. And that if somebody sits down, they don't have to automatically feel safe with you because you have offered to listen to them. It's up to us. And one of the things that I try to do, I try to get other uh, city leaders to do this too, is to sit out at the same place at the same time mm -hmm. because people in the community start to, are, they're familiar with you, right? Um, so I just wanted to highlight those two things that you'd said. Um, who do I represent to them? And it's up to you to build credibility and rapport because safety isn't, isn't sort of a given. It, it isn't. And, and I think what you just said is so important that being visible and, and just, you know, just being there regularly um, and, and being uh, there as someone that people can see, uh, that can help so much. Um, you know, once people recognize us uh, and have a little bit of a context for us, it becomes so much easier to have those conversations. Um, but when people first encounter us, uh, we could be anyone. And a lot of times, you know, especially, you know, the, uh, those of us who are, are coming to this work looking privileged um, you know, for any number of reasons, um, we, we don't have that necessarily that kind of credibility, even if our lived experience is very close to, to those of the, the, the people that we're working with. Um, but yeah, being able to, um, to uh, just be present, be visible, and, um, and be receptive, be open and receptive uh, is, is going to go a long way towards building this you know what else I, I've learned? I, I had this really interesting conversation with these two young, they were, they were homeless kids uh, and addicts and um, self-described addicts. Um, I actually just didn't act like an expert. Um, mm -hmm. we were, they were trigger warning for folks. They were going sp specific on shooting up. And um, I didn't, I just said, I don't know anything about that. And they said, oh, and, and they described it to me and described to me why they do it. And I, I just didn't have an agenda for helping them. I just was curious about why they do it, what their interest is. And I just acted like a person that doesn't know because I don't. And they said, you were so cool to talk to. <laughs> they said, because yeah. you, didn't, you didn't act like you had to have all, have all the answers. You don't, you don't really know anything about my lifestyle. And you just didn't judge. You just asked all these weird questions that most people don't ask us. I'm like, yeah, I just want to know what your life was like. Yeah, and that's such a great example of, of giving people the opportunity to, to, you know, to be the experts on their own experience out loud, 
right? And and being able to share that, you know, the reality of their lives in a completely non-judgmental space. Um, you know, you bring that that kind of open curiosity and, and interest to the conversation without any any layer of judgment. Um, and just saying, you know, I want to know more. Tell me about that. Um, and and that can be that can be such a, a great way to break down barriers and, and have a, a very real and direct conversation with someone. Yeah, because I think sometimes we show up and think we need to be experts on whatever the thing, like we should know all of the different kinds of drugs out there, or all the different right ways to use a pronoun. And I'm like, no, you can just tell people that you don't know and then ask them. (laughs) And the the attitude that we bring to that is going to be very clear. You know, and if we're if uh, if uh, we're coming to it in a very open and almost kind of like naive and innocent way, um, people actually really respect that. And, uh, you know, say, I I don't know. Can you can you share that about you? Can you share that with me? I I really want to learn more Um, and and allowing other people to teach us uh, and uh, and educate us about the reality of their experience. Now, when are we burdening folks, though? to educate us about the reality of our experience. Mm. Like how do we hold that line between that innocent naivete and now I'm burdening you to educate me on you? <laughs> of course. And, um, and you know, we got we to gotta, uh, get experienced at reading the room on that a little bit. And, you know, if we, if we um, you know, we can certainly, we're always going to start out asking these kind of tentative questions, right? There's, a, there's an escalation. With things and, and to ask, you know, and if, if someone is um, is responsive to initial questions, um, that's great. Um, and we can we can you know engage in conversation around that when it's putting the, the responsibility um, on someone to educate us about macro issues that you know in terms of, of marginalization and oppression and and intersectionality and all of this stuff that is lived experience for, uh, for some of us and, uh, and not for others. Um, I know as someone who's queer and transgender that when people bring all of their questions about transgender issues uh, to me, uh, because obviously I know everything and my experience is universal for all transgender <laughs> people, um, that, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, that's uncomfortable for me. Um, that's a lot of information. And why aren't you out there doing your own legwork to learn about this stuff? I think there's a big difference between those macro issues, um, you know, and, and like they, they, someone asking me to teach them about microaggressions and whatnot is uh, is very different than somebody asking me very directly about my day-to-day lived experience. And stuff about, you know, what is that like for you as a, as a transgender person? How is, you know, I don't, I don't know what that's like to, you know, to enter into a, a situation. You know, like if somebody asked me, for example, you know, what the difference is um, for me, um, you know, talking to a group of men, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, for now versus uh, before I transition, that's a question I'm very comfortable answering because there's, you know, it's very illustrative of my experience and, and there's a, a dramatic difference for sure. Um, but you know, it, it's a really different from, uh, between that and somebody asking me a lot of detailed questions about, uh, transgender experiences in general. And I would, I would extrapolate from that to, um, to the kinds of conversations that we're having in the community with anyone. Yeah. Um, I think asking them directly about their lived, personal lived experience is one thing and asking them to explain everything about what it's like to be homeless, uh, is quite another. That's really helpful, actually. Um, I'm aware of the times and I really want 
I'm hoping we'll, we'll get you on video doing some stuff for listeners inside of Sidewalk Talk. But here, I want to ask something for everybody that's watching. Mm-hmm. What are the three skills that you wished, wish the average citizen had in either de-escalating crisis or just interacting with people that are living on the street? What are the three things that you wish they had? Right. Well, the first thing, first and foremost, more, more important than anything else is, is the immediate acknowledgement and validation of, of, uh, of the homeless folks that we walk past on a daily basis as real human beings with histories, with interests, with, with goals, with passions, um, with ups and downs. I mean, the whole gamut of human experience that every person that we walk past on the street is person, right? And, and being willing to engage around that. You know, sometimes I think that, um, that some of us who are compassionate people, we, we may avoid contact with the folks that we pass because we don't have any real way to help immediately. That we don't have any, you know, any money to give or any resources to uh, to uh, to point to, um, but even just making eye contact, even just smiling or saying good morning, or if someone asks me for money, I'm going to say, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I don't have anything for you, sir." You know, um, and and just give a real human response um, rather than just you know just uh, dismissing them or walking away. Um, I think also um, in addition to that, when we're listening. Allowing for silence um, is such a is such a hugely important thing. I think a lot of times we want to fill silence with something. Mm. It can be again very uncomfortable, and, and that's another skill that we can learn is, is to be willing to sit uh, with that discomfort mm. and allow what happens in silence to to bloom and unfold. Because mm. um, a lot can happen there. Um, third, I think one of the the crucially important things in my experience has been validating the reality of uh, the person who may be experiencing, uh, for example, mental health crisis, even if I don't share that reality. So for example, if someone is coming to me and they're talking about their fear of, uh, of being stalked or followed, I'm not gonna try to talk them out of that. I'm not going to try to convince them um, that it's not happening because what that, what that does is to put them in a role of defending uh, their reality. Um, what I'm gonna do is talk to them about their fear. What I'm going to do is, is, is ask them questions about, you know, what can we do to help you to feel safer? Um, you know, what, what are some things that, that we can do right now um, so that the rest of today you, uh, you can have some safe space where you can breathe and relax? Mm-hmm. You know, those are the kinds of things that I'm going to, I'm going to want to do because the, the objective, uh, verifiable truth of, uh, of what somebody is experiencing is absolutely irrelevant. What's important is what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. And that's where, as a listener, I may be able to come in and help. And rather than offering advice, can ask clarifying questions of someone to help them um, uh, define what it is that may be helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any tips? We have had um, one crisis situation come up. Um, any tips to sort of know when there's something that's really dangerous how would you know i know that how you can't you, always when know. there is an overt threat um and uh, it, it and it's usually going to start out as a verbal threat um and not always but uh, but frequently it's going to start out as a verbal threat and that's i'm going to go you know i'm going to i'm going to go to my first i'm going to if i'm starting out at green light i'm going to go to yellow light on a verbal threat um, but sometimes it's going to be, you know, that someone is, is really getting up in my space 
Um, and I'm going to, you know, even if I'm taking a step back to keep, you know, comfortable, you know, what is a comfortable distance for me in between us and that physical threat is oncoming or there's a weapon involved or there's an attempted blow or something at that point, I'm probably going to tap out. I'm probably going to say, okay, whether or not I'm actually physically in harm's way right now, I may not be, um, or I may be, but even if I'm not, um, this person is probably not in a space where we're going to have any kind of productive conversation. Um, so I may just walk away. Um, I may just say, you know, hey, it's been good talking to you. Um, maybe we can pick this up another time. Um, but I'm going to say goodbye for now. Um, or, you know, if it's if it gets more intense than that, I uh, I may end up calling uh, 911, asking to be connected to SFPD and ask for a crisis intervention team trained officer. Uh, that's that's something else that I may do and, and say this is in response to mental health crisis, a CIT officer here now um, and repeat that until I, I get what I need. Um, but, you know, ultimately, we're going to have to rely on our own individual uh sense of, of uh, safety versus danger, it's going to be different for everyone. And I'm certainly not encouraging anyone to really stick it out when they feel that they're, they're in danger. What I do ask people to do is to get in the habit of questioning that initial fear response, because a lot of times that will come up, we'll feel that, okay, I feel on shaky ground here. I'm not sure what's going on. And to get in that habit of self-interrogation and ask ourselves, is what I am feeling right now grounded in a real physical threat? Or is this just my, you know, my conditioning kicking in um, the, uh, the incorrect assumptions and beliefs that society has, has, uh, has put on me over my lifetime? Um, because I can push back against those and I can question those. Um, but when I really feel that my, my physical safety is threatened, and a lot of us are going to know when our physical safety is being threatened, that somebody is, is you know, actually in our space with a weapon or a fist. Um, and and it's, it's okay to step back at that point and, and be out, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's part of the do-gooderness, too. I think that sometimes yeah. we don't pay attention to ourselves because that do-gooderness has us not setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. Exactly the yeah. moment when we need to. And the boundary is actually containing for the other two in some ways, but I love, but I love the personal indictment um, experiment that you're offering us all to do to go. And sometimes your fear response, you need to check it first before you set the boundary. Yeah. And because that also that fear response is going to change over time as we have broader experiences, as we have more conversations or, you know, more listening experiences in public and have more reference points for a variety of different situations, um, we're not going to feel as afraid as we did initially. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to, that, that, that fear response is going to, that line is going to move further and further out over time. And that's good. That's really positive. Um, so, you know, especially early on, if you feel fear, that's normal, that's natural. Um, it's okay. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are in danger. I could talk to you all day long. About <laughs> Julian, thank you. First of all, thank you for being here. Um, oh, you but I want to share with you my experience when I listen to you is I can feel your conviction. And so I thank you for the work that you do in the community and for letting me be on the receiving end of your conviction because it bolsters my own. So I appreciate that. 
And thank I you so much, Tracy. And actually, if I could, if I could say a word on that, just kind of to, to sum up where I am with this and, and just kind of in conclusion for our conversation today. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I have started talking a lot about in the community uh, is the um, experience of post-traumatic growth, because I think it's something we don't talk about enough. Yeah. And what post-traumatic growth is all about, we talk a lot about post-traumatic stress, right? And, and the, the yeah. experience of homelessness is inherently traumatizing. A lot of us who have experienced homelessness end up with some form of post-traumatic stress. But the reality is that many, many, many of us experience post-traumatic growth, which is not just getting back to where we were before we experienced right. the trauma. It's getting to a level beyond that. It's feeling more connected with our lives, ourselves, our communities, um, having warmer relationships, you know, having a greater sense of purpose, um, having changed priorities. And that's something that's been a reality in my life. It's a reality in so many people's lives. I don't think we talk about it enough, so it's something I really want to get out there. And where, where it intersects with what we're talking about today is that many of us who are doing this community listening in whatever form it may be, will often encounter people in some of the lowest moments of their lives. And sometimes it can be really, really difficult to picture them in any other circumstance, right? To picture them in any other way other than just in, in homelessness and crisis. Mm. Anybody who saw me when I was homeless and mentally ill, who saw me today would not recognize me as the same person. Um, the, I, it, the, the changes in my life are so dramatic and I've been so transformed by the kindness and generosity and support of so many different people in my life, both friends and strangers. Um, and I just want to encourage people to stick with this, um, even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult, because you may never get to see firsthand the results, mm -hmm. the, the firsthand the results of, of, of what we do, but it's real. And it changes lives. It's changed my life and it's changed so many lives. So I thank you, Tracy. And mm. I thank you for, for building this community that you have um, and for prioritizing this human connection um, above all of the things that separate us and focusing on the things that unite us, that, that connect us as human beings. Um, I'm so, so honored and delighted to, to um, continue this work with you. And I look forward to, to working with you more in this time. Thanks, Julian. Ah, oh, okay. Well, I guess I have to say goodbye to you now. You can go back and watch yourself with me on Facebook Live whenever you want. And to everyone that's joined along for this conversation, thanks for being here with us. This will be up on our Facebook Live page, and it'll also be part of our listener training for on into perpetuity. And um, you can also find out more about Julian. I'll put some links um, for mental health, the Mental Health Association of San Francisco. It's M, what is the URL? Can you just say it? Oh, it's, it's mentalhealthsf.org. Mentalhealthsf.org because Julian does trainings. Um, and so you can Absolutely. actually go take a training with him, with them. Um, see, I'm still learning my yeah, pronouns. Them, either one is fine. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, 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 to me, it's a real conviction. So I am going to come take a training with you separate oh, just for my it, own thing. I'm so, so I can come hang out too. <laughs> yeah. All right. And yes, I do. Um, uh, MHASF offers supportive crisis response trainings, managing boundaries in the community trainings, um, all sorts of, of different trainings that, uh, that support this work uh, throughout the Bay Area and beyond. So just get in touch. Wonderful. Uh, Can't wait for your book. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.